This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. Time for Ritz and Cures for this week. And tonight we're going to meet Professor Ewan Wallace, who's the CEO of Safer Care Victoria. Now, it's the state's new agency for quality and safety improvement in healthcare. Interestingly, his pathway to this role has been, well, meandering, let's say. He studied in Edinburgh. He came to Australia for a one-year placement and then stayed to become Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at Monash University. And then he set up the Women's Health Service at Monash Health. But during this particular pathway, he became very interested in patient safety. And new reports suggesting that one in 10 patients suffer a complication during their care have deeply interested him. And tonight he'll join you to talk about how we can improve that situation. And in Soapbox, we're looking at online defamation and exploring the traps for the health industry, looking at whether or not a negative comment can be deemed defamatory. Can clinicians defend themselves against online criticism? And can we trust websites to rate our clinicians? How much do you do that when you're looking for somebody to help you when you're unwell. With me in the studio are Catherine Lorenz, who's a Melbourne lawyer. Hi, Catherine. Nice to see you again. Hi, Lindy. And sitting next to you is Associate Professor Steve Ellen, psychiatrist. Hi. G'day, Lindy. So, defamatory. Anyone tried it on you oh, online? They, they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't you dare because it. of my access to lawyers through this show. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> but I love this topic. It, it's been one of my – I've been fascinated by this for a long time because, you know, I've been – you know, I'm fascinated by the whole way that social media in particular, the internet, but social media in particular, is changing the way we communicate and giving people uh, another avenue to communication that really didn't exist before to the same degree. And I think um, one of the things we've seen a lot is where um, criticism online has crossed the line to legal defamation. And I think there's a wide, and there's obviously, not just I think, there's obviously a widespread misperception in the community that things that you say on the internet because you think you're anonymous or you think you're only chatting to mates are excluded. And of course they're not. And it's just, and the problem's been growing and growing. And I was one of these people that sort of stood up and cheered this week when I felt that there was a sort of um, a uh, strike back for the um, powers of the law when the Rebel Wilson case that you're probably familiar with, she was the actress who was defamed by Bauer Media, she got a $4.5 million payout, the largest payout in Australian history for this sort of thing. And I, so I thought, I thought it's a really opportune time for us to sort of revisit exactly what is defamation online and in particular because all of the hospitals and all of our health services are launching into social media and it's and it's opening us all up to all sorts of criticism and debate, not only from patients to us, but potentially from healthcare workers to patients as well. Is this a burgeoning industry, Catherine? How, how much is this being discussed within legal circles? Um, I think it's discussed a lot in legal circles and I think particularly being a health-based lawyer, it's discussed uh, a lot in hospitals, uh, I don't think anybody goes to work expecting that their work will be criticised publicly online. Uh, We expect as a hospital that we will be criticised, the hospital might be criticised, the Department of Health might be criticised, the government might be criticised, but I don't think an individual expects to go to work and to have their reputation essentially trashed online when unless, they're doing their work. Well, it's true, unless you're a radio announcer. Unless you're a radio yeah. announcer yeah. and then it's completely it's, okay. It's well, it just seems to be. But even then, <laughs> that, wouldn't have, are off. that wouldn't have been too big a deal before social media because people's ability to um, defame you 
was so limited. It was hard to define people back in the old days, you know, because you had to go through things like Channels. the media. You had, well, yes, you, exactly. So, you know, you, you could write into the Green Guide or you could send a letter to the organisation, yep. etc. But that's but then but then it's the it's the Green Guide or the, the Herald Sun equivalent that then is the filter through which, well, we, yeah, we can say that because they're talking about the work, they're not defaming the individual, so, okay, let's put that up, let's put that in. So there was always a filter, but you're right, Steve, there isn't now. That's so, right. So, so anybody can enter a public building and go on Facebook and say, I'm at so-and-so hospital and I'd like to say that Dr X at this hospital is an absolute idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about. Then, of course, Dr X reads the Facebook posts and might have had a busy Saturday night in the ED and feels personally affronted and, and personally challenged by what's being written about them. And you're right, there is no filter. There's no one to protect them. So what's being addressed in terms of trying to, to, to – is there counselling for the people who might be the targets of this? I, I, you know, it, if, you're, if you are a lawyer within that health environment, are there plans to, to take individuals to court a la Rebel Wilson style? Although it's – I mean, if you're going to take one person who, is, who says that doctor's an idiot – chances they don't have any money be you know even just you know finding them and where they live and how do you target them they could be using some kind of a pseudonym online it's very tricky isn't it's it? very tricky the law has um, very blunt instruments for ordinary people to take action um, and hospitals core business isn't um, to litigate against its patients our our core business of course is to look after our patients so that's not a business that we would like to be in but we do take steps actively to try to um, mitigate uh, some of the more malicious comments that are personally directed at people. So, for example, we will approach Facebook and request that they remove posts. And um, generally, of course, Facebook now are, face its own um, obstacles if they don't attempt to do the right thing. So that that's one avenue that we often use. Uh, I think... I I feel differently about the Rebel Wilson case than Steve. Although I'm a supporter of um, of what she did, I do think that she is a very well resourced celebrity. She clearly had enough cash. I think a case like that, legal costs on both sides probably would would be in excess of a million dollars, uh, and most people can't do that. Public hospitals don't have that sort of money to throw sure, around. Sure, but the reason I like it though is because she shot a. A missile across the bow of everyone who um, just willy-nilly writes all sorts of crap online just for the sake of getting clicks and and whatnot. And, and that's essentially what the judge said. The judge said essentially that you knew that your um, source for this was dodgy. You knew that it wasn't true. You published it because you made the decision that it was worth it to you financially because she was such a big figure and she had a movie coming out. Yeah. And so the judges hit it quite hard. And I think that flows onto everything because when you say, what can we do about it? The main thing we need to do is educate the public about defamation because if you're publishing and writing something on Facebook when there's a thousand followers on the Facebook site, for example, maybe the hospital has 10,000 followers, you're publishing. And if you write something that's defamatory, that damages someone's reputation and there's no defence like truth or public interest, et cetera, et cetera, then um, you are defaming. And so I think we all have to get good at it. And we've had our first case, you know, 2014 was the first case in Australia of someone suing over 
one of those defamatory comments, um, and it was it was a teacher who was defamed by um, someone who had actually seemed to have written had been mistaken about the teacher and wrote some defamatory stuff, and the teacher took them to court and got one hundred and five thousand. And now I noticed because I plugged it into Google today, I plugged it in um, social media slander, and about eight of the big law firms popped up. With um, you know, Offers. come to us uh, if you've been slandered on Facebook. Come to us. Wow. Yep. So it's yeah, it's, it's a new world. Yep. So you, you, I want to go back into something that you brought up, which is what actually what it actually means to defame somebody. So it is about that they you you have to be seen to or they have to feel as though their reputation has been damaged. Yeah. Right? So it's an intentional spreading of information that damages somebody's reputation. Um, and makes other people think less of them. Uh, Intentional is interesting, isn't it? Because some people are just, I think some people who would just write those damaging comments, they kind of have it in their head that this is just them just flying off the handle about something that happened that afternoon and that person's an idiot and as if it's between, you know, they didn't get a chance to say that to them in the emergency department so now I'm going to say it on social media and I'm going to get it off my chest and it's done. So there's not this thought about I'm intending to damage your reputation. No, but it's intending to publish it, isn't it? So you are intending to publish it and I think that's where the sharing point comes in too. So you can defame someone by sharing the information which is original defamatory. Right. Mm. So not so sharing as in retweeting. 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 What, what about liking? No. I you know the only I say no like a lawyer only because my <laughs> son's studying law and he oh, had to good. write an essay that covered this and we looked into it in detail <laughs> and we decided liking something is not spreading it. At least that was our interpretation for oh, the sake Catherine's of my son's face. essay. Oh, no. Well, uh, look, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a defamation expert, but I think uh, it would be good to get one on the show because yeah. uh, it's such an interesting subject. Yeah. But I think the um, – but certainly resharing it and I'm, I'm, I'm no Facebook Sharing it's definitely, either, definitely um, defamatory. By the way, I've just defamed my son. When I say we were writing an essay for his examiners, <laughs> he was writing it and I was proofreading it for typos. <laughs> He said really, really quickly, but perhaps not quickly enough. Yeah. Okay, so... What, what about... Can I ask another yeah, defamation please, question? Please, yeah. okay, what about the truth? Is that a defence to say, but it's true, He, the doctor was terrible. She or he was um, mean to me and did give me wrong information. I walked out and looked at the up the information online and it turns out they didn't give me the correct um, information. Um, so I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I haven't looked at um, defamation law for about eight years and um, the the law changed in about 2010 I think so hopefully some callers can call up. Yeah. Um, Otherwise I'll be quoting an essay that I read uh, from my son. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Which is perhaps not how deep, uh, we want to go a little more deeply. If you would like to contact us you can by calling 1300 222 or you can text on 0437 774 774 the, the consequences of defamation. I mean, I can understand the financial ones that, that perhaps you know people stop using your services, but then there must be mental health aspects to this too, Steve. Oh, I think without a doubt. Um, you know, our reputation is one of the things that we protect the most, and I think it's um, pretty clear that when our reputation's damaged and we feel publicly humiliated or pub- publicly maligned, um, it affects it causes all sorts of stress. And and there's been lots of it's not one of these things you can measure, but there's been lots of anecdotal cases of people who have suffered public humiliation and they've had suicide attempts and things like that, and uh, and obviously depression and all the you know anxiety and sleepless nights and not eating and all the rest of it. It's clearly got lots of um, ill effects. Uh, 
it's a much more important issue than just legal. I agree, I think it's well, not just was, about the legal consequences. Because I was actually thinking about when the when the defamation laws and libel laws would have come out in in the first place. Just what the what they were targeting. You know, I I can't actually imagine that the the mental health aspect of it was because these laws have been around quite a, for a long time, that they were front and centre of of the reasons why their laws were established. I think it was about loss of business, I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. I, I, loss I, of reputation. Loss of reputation mm. within the community. You know, you don't get invited to the special soirees anymore or something. I, I just Loss of lifestyle, loss of loss of connection to, the, to who you actually think you are. Exactly. And I, I feel very strongly that uh, in a health setting, people tend to come to work with highly altruistic motives. They're highly skilled, highly trained. They're often not well paid. And they come in and to very high stress environments uh, with high volume of patients to see and to see their reputation trashed publicly, humiliatingly online, I can't imagine that it doesn't cause some kind of mental health issue. I probably wouldn't want to get out of bed the next morning and go back the next day. It's, it it is interesting. I... I I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently and I'm in no way everyone's saying this as a challenge to you because I haven't been targeted in that way but I'm not saying that I therefore wish to go through it so I get some kind of educative series experience out of this. But I have not been through that. Uh, a girlfriend of mine, she's a, she's a columnist with a major daily uh, and she gets it on a regular basis. Her thought was that she she now she if she got bogged down by all of the things that were said about her and the things that she says in her column then she she, she would go crazy you know she she just has to step away from it and just do her job but then we started talking about how much notice are people even paying to that crappy stuff anymore and how far are we going down that pa- that 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 path which is you know, and the end point of that is, if anyone says anything online, it's just crap anyway. No one's going to pay any attention to it. Uh, now, tell me both of your viewpoints on on that. What, what do you think of that, Steve? I think there's some truth in it. I think we're getting better and better and better at understanding the medium that is the internet and social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And I think I think people are for start getting a bit sick of them. I don't, I don't think that many people. I don't take any notice of them myself that much anymore. And I think. Um, so I think we're getting better, but I certainly don't think we're immune because I think public shaming – have you, have you read that John Ronson book? Um, I think it's called Shame. Uh, it's a great book exploring the whole concept of public shaming because the internet has given rebirth to the whole concept of public shaming that had sort of died out over the last hundred years, but it sort of came back with a vengeance, and I think it's hopefully now start, starting to die out a little bit. But I think as our laws catch up, with the changing way we communicate, especially social media, I think it'll get even better. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree. I I do think there's a desensitisation factor involved, but we also know that, you know, kids commit suicide after reading social media posts. Online bullying is a problem. So uh, I don't know that we should ever really become completely desensitised to people's pain in these kinds of um, situations. Yeah, I don't think we should be desensitised to the pain. I'm suggesting that we're getting a little bit desensitised to the comments, so hopefully they're not causing as much pain as they originally were. Yeah, We think the book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed.
I'm pretty sure. John Ronson, J-O-N Ronson. That's where you check it out. Um, it's, a gr- it's a great read. There's a couple of things that have been brought up by people texting in, 0437-774-774. One that says, maybe the hospital channels of real complaint is not satisfactory for some of the patients and their families, and this is why social media is pushing the accountability and transparency in many areas. Can Catherine comment on that? Yes, I can. I, I think that um, hospitals' complaint processes are cumbersome, and I think we... Uh, could do more to address them, and I think we are, and no doubt we'll hear more from that when Nguyen is interviewed. Uh, but I don't think that's any excuse for, uh, you know, publicly shaming someone and, um, you know, publicly fronting someone. But you know what? At, I, I at would like to see is when we get critical comments on Facebook and and whatever, whatever, that we someone from the hospital just messages and says, look, I'm so sorry that you had a bad experience. Uh, um, here's the number for our complaints office. We're always keen to hear your feedback. By the way, if you don't want to go through the hospital, there's a Health Complaints Commission, there's APRA, there's et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to see us do that. I think we should do that more, Steve. But I think what I'm just differentiating here are the personal comments directed at an individual as opposed to the uh, quite genuine complaints that people have against Completely. institutions. And I think sometimes the, the personal complaints are in fact a way of expressing a real concern but doing it in a very clumsy way. You yes. used the word clumsy before and cumbersome. I think that, that what what is lacking here and I've all this is this is me by the way this is no way the in, in no way the way the ABC approaches complaints but from my perspective I'm more than comfortable and happy to receive complaints about my work about my work Lindy you laughed over the front of that interview Lindy you didn't leave enough space for that Lindy I wanted to hear more of that person and you cut them off that completely legitimate that's my work and it's I'm a public broadcaster but there is no point in saying Lindy you're an idiot like yes why I want tell me why yeah. that's the case what yeah. made you say that so if and I think that in most companies and in most professions that if you make some sort of complaint about work about work that you see as being inferior or something that has had an effect on you you're much more likely to get a response than you are to, if you if you make a, a personal sort of throwaway statement um, that's just been my experience of it and I'm sure it works the same in the medical and legal fraternities I think so and as someone who's made a complaint to my uh, bank recently, I completely understand the frustration of trying to approach an, uh, a large um, organisation with genuine complaints that I don't feel that get heard. Yeah, yeah. There's another text that says, so if you want to write a note to medical staff in an oncoming shift that a patient has a troublesome personality, how do you do that without facing defamation? It's not defamation if you're sending the information to um, one or two people. Defamation has to be publicly, um, you know, if you send it to everyone, it's defamation. If you just send it to the person involved and it's got some clinical meaning, then it's not defamation. That's right. Okay, good to hear. We're going to be talking more about this, no doubt, in the ensuing days and weeks because I don't think it's going away. This is a major issue to us. Before we finish this up, I just want to get a comment from you, Steve, about the whole idea of websites promoting doctors based on positive reviews. So this is actually looking at it from the opposite side. Well, it's hard to do it quick, but in a nutshell... 
It's a relatively new phenomenon in Australia. When you look at most of these websites, there's only a half a dozen reviews. So they're heavily biased at this stage. Over in the US where it's more established, there's often three or 4,000 reviews, so you can trust them. Unless the actual rating sites publish the number of people who have made the reviews, positive, negative, like TripAdvisor does, for example, you'll see, you know, a hotel and you'll see 5,000 reviews and it got 4.5 stars. Yes. You trust it. But currently they're not publishing, so I don't think they're much good. But I would like to see the government... In fact, we should ask Professor Wallace about this. I'd like to see the government start doing it in a more formalised way. Yeah, I think it's about time that we do that as well. Well, speaking of Professor Wallace, he's not that far away. Professor Ewan Wallace, who's the CEO of Safer Care Victoria, our special guest on Ritz and Cures. You're listening to Ritz and Cures. Catherine Lorenz is here. She's a Melbourne lawyer and Associate Professor Steve Ellen is a psychiatrist in Melbourne. And we've been joined by our special guest tonight, Professor Ewan Wallace, who's the Carlwood Professor and Head of Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at Monash University. But he's also the CEO of Safer Care Victoria, which is the state's new agency for quality and safety improvement in healthcare. He's had an interesting path to this point, completing his clinical and research training in Edinburgh before coming to Monash Health and University in '96. He planned, like so many, to stay for one year, but guess what? He's never left. And for the last decade, he's been the Director of Women's Services at Monash Health, where he's overseen the growth of the service to be Victoria's largest women's health service. His research is in fetal development, cerebral palsy, stem cell biology and patient safety. And now, after 20 years at Monash, he's taken on this new role with Safer Care Victoria. Welcome you and nice to see you. And you, Lindy. Thank and you. And thank you for not going home. Sounds like you've been doing really fine work <laughs> whilst you. you've been here. What does Safer Care Victoria do? So as you said, we're, we're a new agency. We were set up in January of this year um, by the current government to, in a response to a review of um, public hospital safety in Victoria. Our, and our remit is fairly broad. It's about improving the safety and the quality of the care that's provided, not just in our hospitals, actually, out in community also and in private hospitals and public hospitals. So who, who set it up? Did you say it was a government decision to set that up? It was. So there was a review that's famous to the medical community, right. less famous to the public, called the Ducket Review or Targeting Zero, Towards Zero Avoidable Harm. And it was a review that was commissioned by the government in 2016 um, re- really in response to uh, health service failure um, at Bacchus Marsh Hospital, a maternity failure. Uh, and But but the Ducker review was a much broader review. It was about how, how safe are our hospitals in Victoria? And uh, one of the 179 recommendations in the Ducker review was establish a new agency uh, that's dedicated to improving quality and safety of our hospitals and healthcare more broadly. So wasn't one of the quite damaging stats that came out was one in 10 Victorians who have a stay in hospital, there is some kind of harm that comes to them in that process? So the one, the one in 10 figure is a figure that's pretty universal, sadly, not just Victoria, actually all jurisdictions in in Australia and internationally. And the, the, the saddest thing about that one in 10 figure 
is it's been like that for 50 years. Has it really? Mm. And what sort of harm are we talking about? Well, the harm varies a lot, doesn't it? I mean, some of the harm is the, you know, the wrong drug given at the wrong time with no major outcome for the patient. But, but some of the harm is major, wrong surgery being done. Um, and sometimes the harm ends up, of course, in, uh, in patient deaths. Now, th- those are much rarer outcomes. But again, this, the sad thing about it is we, we've known that one in 10 figure for 50 years. It, it, it started off the patient safety movement, if you like, in the United States 50 years ago. And despite much effort, we really haven't made huge inroads into that. You know, when you're talking about the um, one in 10, too, I wonder whether it's changed much because I know my own career, you know, 30 years in the hospital, when I started off infections, that's what I'm thinking about. We washed our hands, I don't know, at the start and at the end of the day. Um, Now (laughs) we wash our hands before and after each time we touch a patient pretty much. And, um, And we're just so much more, not just our hand washing, we're so much more vigilant about getting the flu injection. We're so much more vigilant about wearing masks and all sorts of stuff. Surely our infection rates have gone down and surely that was one of the biggest ones. So I'm surprised that hasn't had an impact. So you're right, Steve. I mean, there has been an impact in some areas. And actually, infection is one of the standouts. So there's a particular infection to do with central lines, lines that go into um, patients' bodies for longer-term um, delivery of drugs, for example. And central, lines in, central line infections was identified some years ago as a major problem. It's all but eradicated in Victorian hospitals, so that they almost don't happen anymore. And in fact, if they happen, they're now a major event and big reviews. So you're right, there are pockets of practice that have been targeted um, that have improved. And, and the challenge for us, not just us, of course, all the hospitals and the clinicians and nurses and midwives, the physios, the surgeons, etc., is to target specific things and reduce it, uh, reduce harm. And, and it's been achieved in some jurisdictions internationally. Our challenge at Safer Care is to do it here in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Catherine? So, um, Ewan, what what are the causes of some of these problems that we're speaking of, the complications, if you like? Is it, is it do, we, do we have competent physicians? Do we have competent medical staff? Do we have rogue physicians? Or are there system problems that might prevent us from attending hospital and having a safe care experience? There, it's complex, isn't it, Catherine? But it, it's it, it's largely system problems. Um, these these are not incompetent individuals or incompetent workforces. Actually, if you look at the Victorian public health system, uh, hospital system, we we have some of the best hospitals, not not just in Australia, but actually in the world. There they are system problems, and and there are some culture problems, workforce culture problems. That, that are they're going to be challenging to correct. Can you give me an example of one? Well, um, when I was a medical student in Edinburgh, I remember on the very first day of medicine, um, lecture number one, nine o'clock in the morning, might have been eight o'clock in the morning actually, um, our dean of medicine said to us as a class, welcome to Edinburgh, you are the elite of the elite of the elite. You're in the best medical school in the world. You're doing the best profession in the world. Now, look, Edinburgh's a very good medical school. It has never been, by any measure, the best in the world. But that that feeling of um, of authority on um, um, it, it underpins some of the culture problems in the medical workforce. Uh, and healthcare is so complex now. Doctors are but part of a team. And, and for the team to work effectively, they need to be but 
part of a team. And sometimes it's the nurse or the physio or the midwife who needs to pull them up and say, hey, actually, are you really, do you really want to give that drug or do you really want to do that thing? And um, our hierarchy is not quite there yet. So some hospitals do it extremely well. Others do it much less well. And so doctors, not just doctors, but doctors make mistakes and people stand by and watch them. And they know it's a mistake, but it's the doctor, so she or he must know what they're right, doing. Right, right. This sounds. Like we've had this conversation, have we, on Ritz and Cures before about it being one of the major issues for both professions, for both medicine and the, and legal professions to to get their head out of you know where yeah. uh, and realise oh. that they've the complex. They've got a it's a, yeah, the god complex. And just going back to the um, text message that you received before, Lindy, I'd like to ask you and. Um, do, do patients have adequate forms of making complaints, genuine complaints to hospitals? And is this sort of God complex, if you like, or, or this sort of culture issue, does it prevent them from being heard properly so that you can respond to what might be legitimate safety concerns? Uh, I think um, there, are, there are adequate avenues. So the, the first avenue is to complain to the hospital and all hospitals have patient liaison or complaints offices um, and beyond that as Steve commented before that we have the Health Complaints Commission, a fabulous commission, they will um, act on behalf of patients as advocates and um, and, and seek conciliation uh, and there are, there are other avenues of course to the government directly, to Safer Care directly, to APRA etc but actually patients don't complain at the rate that they should. And I think that's also reflective of the culture. So as an industry, it still hurts us when we get a complaint and we're defensive. The responses to patient complaints are clumsy. Um, they take a long time and they don't feel very authentic and they, and they don't feel human in an industry that's all about being human. And so it's no wonder patients don't complain. We should welcome. I mean, one of the mantras of Safer Care is we should welcome complaints because they're opportunities to improve. But you oh, and is, oh, oh, sorry, yes, you everyone wants to talk immediately about that one. You kidding me? <laughs> sorry, Kathy, go on. Uh, I guess I want to. I would like to explore a little bit more as to whether there's a uh, statistical link between adverse events, complications, if you like, and complaints. Do do we have that data in Victoria? Well, so there is a link. Um, I mean, the, the landmark studies were done by Vanderbilt Medical Centre in the, in the States um, actually some time ago. It, there's a fabulous research group actually here in Melbourne, Marie Bismarck at the University of Melbourne, um, who's been looking at patient complaints through APRA and other, other sources and linking it to adverse outcomes, to litigation um, and you know, surprise, surprise, Vanderbilt told us this some time ago, there are frequent flyers. So there are individual clinicians, not, not just doctors, but largely doctors, who have recurrent complaints by a number of patients made against them. And if you look at their clinical performance, it's less satisfactory than their peers. They're higher risk of litigation for adverse outcomes. One of the challenges actually highlighted in that Ducket report I mentioned before, one of the challenges is in Victoria... We haven't been good at linking all those sources. We haven't been good at linking patient complaint systems in the hospital with the Health Complaints Commission, with APRA, with our hospital insurers, etc. And again, one of the functions of Safer Care is to help make those links. And I have to say, we're only nine months old, but the conversations that we've already had with the Health, Health Complaints Commission 
public insurers, hospitals themselves, APRA, have been extremely positive. Because there's a story there to be of told. Of course there's a story. And, and you know, that would actually make it easier for a lot of people to, to, to know that, that, that those stories are being shared, I think. There's been lots of texts. I, I want to get to a couple of them before we come back to, um, to Steve. Professor Ewan Wallace is here. He's the CEO of Safer Care Victoria. I, I just want to go back to the idea of, you know, your physio and your, your specialist and your nurse and, and whoever's standing sort of around your bed. I'm the patient. And uh, we were talking about how they there might be a decision being made by the doctor, by the specialist, uh, saying this is what's going, what we should do, and the nurse and the physio, et cetera, are going, mm, I'm not really sure. I, we also don't want a situation where they suddenly go, oh, are you kidding me? Well, I wouldn't do that. I mean, as the patient, you want to feel that you know everyone's on the same page and they've really taken into consideration uh, what your prognosis is and what your treatment should be and perhaps have had you know a, a meeting, a bit like what my parents talked about when I was a kid and they said that you know I said how often you guys always seem to be on the same page and they said oh that's what we showed you that you have no idea what the conversations were like behind the scenes you know we had we had a fight and then we decide this is where we're going and this is what we'll tell the kids and surely this has to be the same when it comes to a variety of, of medical and allied practitioners coming up with the treatment that's appropriate. It is Lindy and those things aren't they don't come naturally so actually we have to train the workforce in how to have those conversations in a respectful manner, but also to, if someone, doesn't matter who it is, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or a physio, if someone's about to make an error and their colleague knows it's an error, they have a duty of care to say, hey, wait, whoa, Lindy, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Um, and you can, but you can do that in a manner, you can say, Lindy, do you mind, can we just step out for a minute? Yeah. yeah. Or, or, you can, or you can just say, Actually, I don't think I think it's this yeah. thing you should be giving. Yeah, not the I other. could be wrong, but it, I'm yeah. just thinking. I'm, oh, of course, I'm wrong. Yeah, even I think it's a it's a isn't it about communication? It is, and it's so I much see that I get to go to a lot of the multidisciplinary team meetings, and I see it done in so many different ways. Yeah. There's one I'm going to at the moment in palliative care at my hospital, where there's a um, the boss, the person who. So it's still hierarchical. It's still run by the palliative care physician, but she's just incredibly good at letting everyone feel fantastic about giving their bit. She still keeps control. She still moves it ahead. She doesn't let it get too dragged down. But no one from the med- she even introduces the medical students at the start. No one from the medical student through to the other consultants in the room, you know, who a lot of whom are professors, everyone feels comfortable saying their bits. I've gone to other ones, not so much recently, but I, there are other ones you go to where everyone's a little bit intimidated and no one wants to, once the boss has spoken, no one will say anything. And it's hard, you know, it's, it's a changing culture, a changing environment, and it's something we're getting better on, but we could, you know, maybe it's not happening fast enough, I don't yeah. know. And, and Steve, you make a good point, because it's, it's not about not having a leader of the team. The team to work effectively, there still needs leadership and direction, but it's having a culture that every team member can be challenged where it's appropriate. Mm. And it's for the better care of the patient. There's a few texts. Um, one that says, what are the cost of complications, though? Of course, things like longer stay, perhaps return to theatre, increased interventions. Surely they're the major drivers of increased costs. So if you just want to be all economical about it, then we've got a duty of care to our pockets here in, you know, in terms of the coffers of the state system in order to uh, to keep the cost down. Well, there's some scary numbers there, Lindy. Oh, so, I can imagine. So um, it's been estimated that 25% of hospital costs are due to harm. So wow. if, if, we could, if you could obliterate harm, 
avoidable harm, you would reduce hostel costs by 25%. Just imagine what you could do with 25% of our state health budget. Just and, imagine and just, my pay rise alone. Exactly. Yes. Catherine, just talk well, over fact, it. Talk there's over 10%. It. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, does that include the litigation bill for no, the state? No, it doesn't. No, it's so just the additional of costs of the health care. And yeah. also how much you can reduce some of those waiting lists, mm. you know, because people aren't staying in there longer. It's fascinating. Uh, there's a couple of texts uh, that I want to get to, but I also want to ask kind of the broader story that, that your career tells us, you And I, I have to ask why you never went home. Well, um, so we did come out for a year. We came out in 1996, year of North Melbourne Premiership. I, I know that's going to offend you, Lindy. No, um, no, it's, but it might, it's made my, happy, my husband yes, very happy. Yes. So well done you, yeah. Um, and um, there was this big, bright yellow thing in the sky I'd never seen before. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, look, Melbourne... Um, Melbourne is a fantastic city. My wife, Karen, when I said after six months, oh, I think Monash have offered me a job to stay longer. And she said, so you took it? <laughs> and I said, no, bloody idiot. Would you get back in there tomorrow morning and take it? Um, so she loves Melbourne. Um, it's a fantastic. I mean, Edinburgh is a beautiful city, but um, so is Melbourne. And we've uh, we felt very much at home here from day one. So what was it, the thing about, I mean, how, you know, working in the gynecological and, and paediatric field, what then led to this deep interest in patient safety? Well, so as you said in the intro, um, very kind intro, you know, I've been head of service. At, I was head of service at Monash um, Health, um, head of women's service there for about 11 years. And um, it became more visible. I mean, of course, it's visible as a, as a practicing doctor that harm happens. But what became more visible as a head of service is well, now I'm responsible for this. And I, I, I would meet um, often, I mean, like monthly, with women and their partners and their families to to apologize for things that had gone wrong under our care. Um, and it just drove home for me that we must do better, we can do better, and, and then took me into, well, how do we do this better? What are the levers? What are the causes of harm? Because, again, we have a fantastic hospital system, and um, I, I think the best in Australia, um, in, in Victoria. Um, and, and no one gets up in the morning to, to come to work to cause harm. So, so how have we built a system that allows harm to happen and how do we sort it? Um, and, of course, obstetrics. I mean, my own practice was in high-risk obstetrics and obstetrics things go wrong. We're the most litigated, well, one of the most litigated specialties. Um, uh, and then working actually with the legal department and Catherine um, latterly at, at Monash said, well, how, you know, he, here's our indemnity bill. How, how do we reduce this? How do we, because we can spend that money on other things, yeah. on proper patient care. Um, and it's complex and it's fascinating. And as, as an academic, it, it's challenging. Um, I'm up for a challenge. Of course you are. You wouldn't have taken the job otherwise. I remember years ago when I was working at the University of Newcastle that I worked in the PR department and they had an aviation course there. And I can remember doing a number of articles that I wrote on behalf of some of the, the academics there, um, well, basically just the communication about them. They wrote the articles. Um, uh, and the major focus at that time, we're talking the 90s, was human factors in the air human factors, nothing to do with the technology and, and look how much aircraft have changed since that particular time and, and there was a, a, a great deal of um, respect for, for what was going on with the, from the engineering perspective but the most important 
area of research in aviation at the time was human factors. So we've been having you know, some conversations with the aviation industry partners and um, what they describe, our, and their reflections are that our culture now, our workforce culture now feels like the aviation industry in the mid-80s. So that's really encouraging because they've sorted it. So if they can do it, they can do it with pilots. Yeah. We can do it with surgeons. Yeah. Do you think? Of course with we surgeons. can. You mean? Really? You mean? <laughs> yeah, really. Even so, psychiatrists, even maybe. Oh, I don't know a, about that. I think that's, that's a going a bit <laughs> a You will never get to there. <laughs> a, bit, a bit far. Um, we're going to finish this up by asking, have you kept a record of the number of babies you've delivered? No, I haven't. You haven't? No, I haven't. Thousands? Because, oh, thousands. Because genuinely, I mean, this, this sounds cheesy and corny, but, but genuinely, everyone, it's just the most amazing thing. You're still blown away by the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I am. Because uh, you can't viewing? do it. <laughs> <laughs> do people still do that? You know, you know, early this, you know, a hundred years ago, people named their baby after the doctor. Not anymore. Well, I had, I, I did have a, a lady I looked after once when I was a registrar, actually, and very difficult pregnancy. And, you know, when a baby was born, she says, what, "What's because it's in Edinburgh, but it's Doctor Wallace, not Ewan. What's What's your name, Doctor Wallace?" I said, "Ewan." And then turned to her husband and said, I think we'll call him Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it made her decision for you, which is beautiful. Pleasure to meet you. Thank Andrew. you so much for coming in. Professor Ewan Wallace, not Michael, he's the CEO of Safer Care Victoria, amongst many other hats that he continues to wear, associated with Monash University and Monash Health. And my co-hosts tonight have been Melbourne lawyer Catherine Lorenz. Thank you, Catherine. And psychiatrist Dr Steve Ellen. Not Michael, either. Thanks, Lindy.